passage this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news of his Son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in his will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can find mutual encouragement in the fellowship of faith. I ask that you would speak words of truth through your servant, Pastor Patrick, this morning. And that we would be a faithful church whose good news of your son is always on our lips so that his name can be reported in all the earth. We thank you for today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Michelle, thank you very much. Happy Mother's Day. I want to add that as well. Um, How did your son, mothers, how did your sons or husbands do uh, so far today? How are they doing? I think I did okay. I did okay. Um, I miss the hints. Now, my wife is long-suffering with me. She's gracious, but I definitely miss the hints. I'm utilitarian. I like tools, clearly. Um, I didn't buy her a tool. No, 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 no. I, I buy myself tools. Um, I didn't buy her a vacuum cleaner. I've already, I, I knew that. I did buy her a cooktop, though, which was really nice. We needed a new one, which is super cool. And she's like, that's a nice family present. <laughs> she loves it. Anyways, I, 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 I'm still working on this, friends. After here, I got a mission. I will not be home until I report back with what was communicated to me. Anyways, I love my wife. She'd be grateful. I, she was here first service. We were laughing about it. And uh, I, it was a good faith effort on my part, but that's about extent of what it was. It was a good faith effort. And I'm glad you're here with, worshiping with us as we continue our series through the book of Romans, The Reign of Grace the look at what Paul is going to communicate to a church in which he's not been to, a people he's never met, and yet he is encouraged by and thankful for. As you look at this sermon today, if you've ever been on a roller coaster before, as you ascend the hill, you hear the clickety-clack of the safety mechanisms uh, hitting in in case something happens on the hill as you go up. Well, this sermon is a continuation of ascending that hill before the the perilous plunge into the excitement where as you ascend the hill, you can look off in the distance and you get an idea of where we're headed and where we're going. And so as we go up the hill this morning and continue before the perilous plunge into the the extent of the book of Romans, Paul's going to lay before us his praise, his prayer, and his plan for them. And so, brothers and sisters, we're going to communicate something very clearly that Paul's concern is with the faithfulness of the Roman church in regards to the gospel. He wants them to be a faithful church, just as we want to be a faithful church to God and what he's given us. And so as we dissect Paul's words, he is going to inscribe on our hearts, hopefully, or God through him, what it means to be a faithful church. But as I speak broadly, we can misidentify that there's something individually that I'm held accountable for. In the same way, if you send out a broad email, including 30 people asking for help, you will get this many responses because someone else is going to do it. That's someone else's idea. So in lieu of that, I am going to address this to each of you, but I'm going to speak very broadly of the church. I'm going to speak to the church's faithfulness, 
But it's up to you to individual, as an individual to prescribe what the Lord is calling you to do in order to maintain your faithfulness in regard to what Paul communicates. And so as we walk down through this passage, my prayer and hope is that we recognize that faithful churches are first grounded in faith, they are growing in faith, and that they're sharing that faith with the world. It's pretty straightforward. It is simple, and yet the the reason why it's profound is because we often miss it. We misidentify where the Lord might be calling us and how he's convicting us. But truth be told, book of Romans, it will be a roller coaster. But let's take a deep breath before the plunge and consider what was his praise, his prayer, and his plan for this church. Because it will be for ours. Will you pray with me before we jump into scripture one last time? Our Lord and our God, Father, thank you for the words written so long ago that can still, that, that still communicate to us hope, excitement, joy, correction, and direction. Father, will you use this morning, will you be the teacher this morning to open our eyes, to reveal to our hearts what we can believe and how we can live? For Father God, I would ask and pray that we can each affirm and proclaim the gospel to one another and to the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with me, open up to Romans chapter, excuse me, chapter 8, excuse me, 1, verses 8 and 9. Sorry, my notes were flinging back and forth. Romans chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. Let me read for this, read this with you. This is Paul's praise. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention you. So Paul, in the start of Romans, he continues his standard practice of affirming the people whom he's writing to. Read every epistle he's written. He always affirms what he can to the church whom he's writing to. And we have no reason to believe that it's ever just platitudes. Instead, what we recognize is Paul's deep love for Christ's church, no matter where they are. That same love is valid here. He loves this church. Yet oddly enough, he's never met them. He couldn't paint a picture of who they are. He has no idea what they look like, and yet he knows them. He knows of their story. He knows what they have communicated. He probably knows how they began. And so when he says, first, what does he mean? Well, there's, if you keep reading, there's no second, there's no third, there's no next. So either he forgotten the excitement of writing the whole book, and the whole book is just a first. <laughs> I think the idea of what he's actually getting across is, first of all, Before I get into this, I want to let you know something very important. Good job. Thank you. He's affirming this church. Paul is praising God specifically for their faith in two ways. And we need to apply them based on Paul's praise. First, faithful churches are grounded in faith. Now, I know that sounds really obvious, and it is. But appearances can be deceiving in a church. Their faith in the gospel, first for salvation and then for their transformation through sanctification, is the foundation of what this whole church is built upon. They believe that Jesus is the king sent into this world, born of the Virgin Mary, living a sinless life, dying an atoning death for sinners on a cross, and all who believe that message are saved. And because they believe that message, they are indebted to Christ and are being transformed into his image. This is foundational to this whole church. And Paul is saying, good job. Thank you. That faith is an encouragement to me. They don't deny 
what Jesus proclaimed, not in word nor in deed. So I know of many churches that slowly become unfaithful over time despite having outward appearances of a fruitful ministry. They may not deny the good news of Jesus, but like the Ephesian church in Revelations 2, when Jesus is speaking to seven churches, he, li- he lists to Ephesus one problem. He says, everything you do is wonderful. If you read that passage, he affirms them and their actions, oftentimes their attitude, what they're engaging in. But the one charge he has against them is says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. You forgot about me. You stopped trusting in me. You stopped loving me, your Savior. The externals do not prove the internal. And so we have to ask this question. If your faith is not in Christ, if our trust is not in Him and it's departed and we just put on the acts of righteousness, what's the alternative? What else do we have faith in? Well, ourselves. It's always been the case since Genesis 3. The temptation to be self-God is what was presented to Adam and Eve, and they chose that. That underlying pride and desires to, to trust in ourselves. So a great example of how Paul is going to help encourage them and strengthen them in the faith is in chapter 14. So if we flip over to chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, Paul gives us a great example of what it means to operate or to live out of faith. He's speaking specifically about a, well, the context he's specifically speaking to is a debate between some Christians in the church of whether you should eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, whether it was right or wrong. Well, Paul concludes the whole argument by saying in verse 21, it is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes another brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because of his eating is not from faith. Everything that is not from faith is sin. So Paul's immediate context of this debate regarding eating meat sacrificed to idols, he concludes by exposing both a stronger brother who says, it's no big deal, and a weaker brother or sister who says, no, that, that is sin, we shouldn't do that. He, he exposes both of them and says, either one, you have an opportunity not to live out of faith. Specifically, to the, to the stronger person, he says, you may have liberty to, liberty to eat it, though you should not trust in your own reasoning. God may be convincing you or convicting you to abstain voluntarily. Just because you can doesn't mean God's saying you should. Yet, on the other hand, the weaker, if they act out of doubt and say him and Han about the decision, they again trust more in their own reasoning than what God is presenting them to act. Anything done apart from faith is sin. The church in Rome, Paul is praising them. You don't operate. Now, he's going to strengthen them. Obviously, this example comes from Rome. So there's still a ratcheting up that needs to happen. But in generality, he looks at the church and says, you are operating out of a place of faith. You trust the Lord. A great example of this, and we're taking a little excursus. I didn't plan to do this, but in applying what Paul is saying right here, there's a conviction in me that I need to read Jeremiah 17, verse 5 with you. And so if you have your Bible, I'd love for you just to flip over. To the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8, I'm going to read. Now, this is a perfect description of what it means to either trust in God or trust in oneself. So in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind, makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. 
right, that person is cursed. How? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 6, he will be like a juniper in, in the desert. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places of the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. The experience of the curse is what God has set in motion. Trusting in me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity, leads to a cursed life. Drought is coming. Living in a desert will happen. We will shrivel up if we trust in ourselves or the creation. But here's the alternative. Verse 7, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out toward a stream. It does not fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in the year of drought or cease producing fruit. This is the foundation of what it means to have faith, to trust in God. Both the one trusting in God and not trusting in God, they both experience drought. They both experience hardship. One is blessed, one is cursed. One can depend upon the Lord to see them through, producing fruit and foliage in times where it should not. The Roman church is doing that, which is why Paul praises them. He wants to encourage them very specifically. He's going to correct them in some ways, but we recognize that faithful churches are a testimony to the world. Faithful churches are a testimony to the world. At the, Paul, at the time of Paul's writing, he speaks concerning his known world. So he's not speaking of the world entirely, but to the one he knows. And Paul uses the Roman church to exemplify faithfulness to, a peop, to the people and churches he's sharing the gospel with throughout the Aegean. So think about why that may be. Why would Paul use this Roman church as his example to other churches and other people to saying, see, look at Rome, they're believing and acting upon their faith. Why would he do that? Because one of the ripple effects of the gospel is that it's anti-imperial. It undermines the Roman Empire. Because what's the gospel? It's the royal proclamation that a king has come. The true king, the king of kings, has been born into this world, lived a sinless life, died a sinless atoning death for sinners, and all who believe in that message will be saved. That points a finger at Caesar and says, you're not the king of kings. And so why Paul is using these Romans at the heart of the empire, at the heart of the Gentile world, really the heart of the known Western world, there exists a church who proclaims and professes and lives out of this message. It's a testimony to the world. And that's not just then, it is now, 2,000 years later. We're still proclaiming the faithfulness of this church to the world. But stories like that continue to this day and have throughout the ages. One only needs to look to Ukraine and ask the stories, what is the church doing there? If the church can't help in a crisis like that, it has no business helping in peace. But when you begin to read stories, as I put, uh, found an article by Biola University that was put out about their extension campus in Kiev, you begin to read of what believers are doing, practicing and affirming the gospel, not just proclaiming it, but affirming it. Austria, Nikola, Roman, uh, Romuk, excuse me, the lead pastor of Irpin Bible Church, remained in Irpin during the early weeks of the war, initially serving his community, helping hundreds flee out once Russia's attacks reached the outskirts of the city. Oksana Koten, a Sunday school teacher and a camp director at First Baptist Church in Kiev, when asked by her son and her friend to bake bread, she considered those around her that still didn't have the opportunity to eat. And she began baking, emptied out her cupboard and her flour and baked bread for all of the neighbors whom she could, which then inspired all of her neighbors to do the same thing, feeding everyone inside of their apartment block. 
or Pastor Bo Mahaze. He has six kids with him and his wife. Five are adopted. On the second night of the war, took in 60 more orphans along with their caretakers and families from the city of Melitopol, which was overtaken by Russian troops within the first few days of the war. Along with a team from their church, they have continued to host refugees in their church building, feeding and housing anyone who comes in need. Local churches that were in Kiev and other places are now scattered hundreds of miles away from each other along roads and evacuation lines. But pastors who, who have taken up delivery routes now stop at each place where their churches are to pray and to encourage and to minister them along the way. Many churches have turned into shelters of some sort and some kind. One of the pastors in Kiev, Pastor Borioso, expressed a new depth of meaning that has come to him and his church when, the, when they read the Psalms. As they sheltered during the early days of the war and what has continued since, when the aggression began, he writes, our church opened her doors to those who needed shelter and support. Every hour we read a psalm and two people pray. I have never experienced the psalms that speak of deadly threats from enemies, God's sovereignty, his protection of the innocent, and judgment on the unrighteous as I do now. Faithful churches are a testimony to the world. They live out and demonstrate what the gospel was intended to transform. Brothers and sisters, are we a faithful church? I would hope so. I believe so, but if you don't, let me know. Let's consider how we can increase and solidify our testimony to the world around us. So Paul first thanks the Roman church. He praises God for the foundation of faith it's built upon, and then he issues a prayer for them. But this is my desire. Point number two, Paul's prayer. Look with me in verses 10 through 12. Always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And as, as you read through, it's not surprising, if you read through the, the Paul's epistles, it's not surprising that he prays for his people. Him, among all the other uh, New Testament writers, issues prayers in his writings. So in one way, prayer is Paul's secret weapon for the church. He's constantly praying for the people whom he writes to and loves. And one of the things we recognize is what Paul is praying for is that the church continues to grow. Although it has a foundation of faith, he wants to continue to build upon that foundation, which is why faithful churches continue perfecting. Faithful churches continue perfecting. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, no perfect church exists, despite us trying to find it and looking for a church to find home. Maybe that's some of you, and you're looking for the perfect church. But we know it doesn't exist, but but why? What reason have you heard or given of why no perfect church exists? Well, I think the most common response is that it's made up of sinful people. While that's not wrong, I believe the emphasis is. Instead, the focus should be on the direction we're headed rather than the state we are currently leaving. No perfect church exists because no one is yet perfected. The church is never perfect, but always perfecting. The people of God are never perfect, but always perfecting. So Paul's prayer is to bring the church some spiritual gift, some blessing that will help them mature and develop more into Christ-likeness. That goes in total for a church, but it's built upon us as individuals. But as a broad definition, a broad understanding of a church, let me dispel two fallacies that are common within evangelical circles concerning churches. They may seem pretty obvious, but I just want to restate them. First, 
Church size does not indicate health. It's simply not true that a large church is a healthy church. A tumor can continue to grow in size, but is a tumor healthy? The same is for a church. Size can grow and continue to expand, but what's attracting the people to growth? What are they being bound to? What's being proclaimed? Why is the growth taking place? It can be something that is not what God expects in the gospel. And so, yes, healthy churches can grow in size. Our church is continually growing. I believe it to be a healthy church based on what I'm going to talk about in a second. But health and size, if they go together, it's correlation, not causation. But the second fallacy is on the other side of the spectrum that I want to expose, is that faithful churches are small churches. That also is not true. Just because a church is small doesn't equate to its faithfulness in the eyes of God. In my experience, small churches often struggle with complacency, no longer living out of their faith, but instead living in their comfort. Oftentimes, what they've already accomplished, what they've already done, not training up and raising in righteousness. Neither size, big or small, equates to a healthy church. So what does instead? What are some metrics? What are some things we can understand what a healthy church is? In terms of growth, constantly perfecting. Well, you can read a book. I'm, I can't give you, that could be its own sermon of, and there's a book written by, called, by Mark Dever called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I encourage you to read it. It is phenomenal. It's foundational. It's the gold standard. But for us, if I were to narrow those down to three things, how can we know we're constantly perfecting as a healthy church? Well, first, saints build one, up, build one another up through their worship. The saints build one another up through their worship. Now, that's just not singing songs. That's using your gift. On a Sunday, many people worship without singing. They're either teaching, leading, caring for, and praying up here, preaching. We build one another up through our worship of God by the use of our gifts. Number two, saints grow in their knowledge and love of Christ. Your heart cannot love what your mind does not know. Healthy churches continually put before people the knowledge and growth of Christ. Our heart cannot love what our mind does not know. And number three, saints affirm and proclaim their faith to the world, inviting all people to come and meet Jesus. These three things I see in this church and what I just said in one roundabout way is our mission statement as a church. <laughs> Surprise! The mission of our church is to gather disciples to worship in spirit and truth who grow, who grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and who go into the world proclaiming the gospel. In order to accomplish these things, it takes a humble people recognizing we have not arrived and we need to continue to grow. We are not there yet. But by the grace of God, one day he will bring us to it. Healthy, faithful churches continue perfecting. But to dig down a little deeper into this, one point is also that needs to be exposed is that faithful leaders keep growing. Not only do churches need to continue to grow, but the leaders of that church need to keep growing. Look what Paul says in verse 12. If you were to read this again with me, it says, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul wants to bless the Roman church, but he in turn expects to be blessed by them. So just like that church, we recognize that we as leaders must continually grow. We have not arrived. So we would assume that Paul wouldn't need their encouragement, that of all people and who wrote most of the New Testament, does he really need to be encouraged? He certainly sees it that way. His humble expectation is for their faith to strengthen him. I like John Calvin in his commentary on Romans, writes concerning this verse, he says, he, Paul, 
did not disdain to seek confirmation from inexperienced believers. He means what he says too. For there is no one so void of gifts in the church of Christ who is unable to contribute something to our benefit. There is not a person here on your faith journey, whether it started today or whether it's your last day, in which you can benefit and encourage one another, strengthening in the faith. Perfect example for this for me is I was taught, someone had to show me what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. When I was in California, where I was last pastoring, there was a, uh, a gentleman who had to teach me what it meant to, work in spirit, to worship in spirit and in truth, and he was mentally handicapped. He had a disability. His name was Zane. Every Sunday, he lived at the Hickory House, about uh, two or three blocks west of the church, and he would walk to church, dragging his feet usually, and I love Zane. This is nothing disparaging. I'm just painting a picture to help you understand how the Lord got to my heart, okay? He would usually be dragging his feet a little bit. His pants would be falling off generally, even though he had suspenders. His shirt was half tucked in, but he had a Bible in his hand. And sometimes his face would be half shaven when he'd be coming to church. And it was an old building was built in the 1930s, and so it had the original pews still in it with glorified floor mats for seat cushions. And the second row on the right-hand side, Zane would sit every morning. And there was an overflow room, uh, your stage left, so it would be over here, and you sat perpendicular to the stage and the other pews. And so I would usually sit in the front row of that, staring right across, looking almost straight at Zane. And so I would see his profile every Sunday. And when it got the time to worship... Zane worshiped better than anyone I saw. Hands lifted until his pants would start falling and he'd hold up one hand. <laughs> he'd be looking around, trying to sing, but you know what? He worshiped with abandon and great joy. He knew not of concerns that I had. He didn't know how he sounded, nor did he care. He didn't know what he looked like, but he didn't care. What he knew in that moment is he loves his God and he knew his God loved him. He taught me what it meant to worship in spirit and truth, that my responsibilities, my needs, the way I sound, the way I look, what I had to do later that day mattered little in the presence of the creator of all things. I had to be taught that. He taught me something I couldn't teach myself, what it meant to worship in spirit and in truth. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you would equate yourself as, whether it's the least of these or the greatest of these, we need to humble ourselves and be taught by one another in this body whether through word or through deed. We must continue to grow. So specifically to my fellow pastors and elders, leaders of community groups or children's ministry, we must be continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look to one another to be taught. Don't disdain one another. Look down upon one another. Paul certainly did not. And he, above all people, had the right to probably. But he didn't see it that way. And so we are never perfect, but constantly perfecting. So I pray that God will use the least of these to do it. Brothers and sisters, let's humble our hearts. And so like Paul, he first praises the church. He's encouraged by it. But then he issues a prayer. There's a great desire. There's a yearning in his heart for them to continue to grow and to be perfected. And so he issues the plan for them. This is his plan, and in some ways, it's their plan too. Let's read verses 13 through 15. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. 
Now, we don't really know if the members of the Roman church were upset at Paul for not coming so early, uh, but he's making very clear, he's reassuring them, this is my great desire. He wants to minister to them, and as Jeff preached a couple weeks ago, he wants to minister out from them. He wants them to be the base of their operation for the rest of Europe. And so he wants to come to Rome. I mean, there's some good reasons for Paul's inability to join them in worship. A couple of years prior to writing this, Emperor Claudius had put a ban. He had exiled all Jews from the, from the city of Rome. They were not permitted within the city at all. And so for five years, Paul, being a pretty outstanding Jew, he, he says so himself, he wouldn't have been allowed in. But another good reason, as we look through the epistles and we see what Paul is communicating with, there's some other challenges and problems that may have prevented him, namely the good, the bad, and the Corinthians. <laughs> Probably had to work with people a little bit longer than he had thought he had to. But regardless, Paul is saying, I plan to come to you specifically because I have been commissioned to share the gospel. Paul is obligated to preach the gospel. Remember, he's a servant of God. He has been saved by Christ and now is indebted to Christ. And in order to carry out that gospel, he's going to share it to whomever God has given him, but in his way. Yet a quick, quick reading of these verses don't give us a, a pause like it would the Romans. So when we read in verse 14, I'm obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, we go, great, that sounds like it's part of your mission. If you were a Roman in that day, there would be a pause. There would be a little bit of friction there in your understanding. Because when Claudius kicked out the Jews, did the whole church leave? No, the Gentiles got to stay. The Jewish Christians had to go. And after five years, now the Jews are coming back in. Do you think there's friction between the two on the right mode and methodology of worship? Absolutely. The Roman church is not disunified, but it is fractured in one way. It'd be the same if you grew up in a traditional church singing hymns and having an organ and you came into service today. It feels off. There is friction. There's internal questions. Is this right? Well, that's happening in the Roman church. There are the Christian Jews and they're the Gentile Jews and they have a division. But here's why it gives them pause. What does Paul say? I'm going to enter a third party into the mix. I'm preaching the gospel to Greeks and to barbarians. See, a Greek at that time was someone, it was obviously someone from Greece who was Greek, but it also came to represent, in many ways, someone who was educated, someone who, dare I say, was civilized. Oftentimes, someone from within the empire. But Rome had many people who were not from within the empire. They had plenty of conquered people who were in and throughout Rome and who Paul wanted to go preach the gospel to, the Germanic people. Paul is saying, even the friction that you have now, I'm entering a third party into the mix. I'm entering a group of people, the uncivilized, quote-unquote. Now, why could he be so confident in doing that? Why would Paul have a plan to share the gospel? Now, he's going to put at ease the tension between Greeks and Jews in that moment, or the Gentiles and the Jews, but I'm going to throw another picture. What makes him so confident in doing so? Because he truly believes and knows that faithful churches share the gospel with all people. Faithful churches share the gospel with all people. Because Paul is passionate and confident in faith, he knows the capabilities and the power of the gospel. If you read, if I were to add another point to this sermon, it would be Paul's passion, and I think that is in verses 16 and 17. The reason why he's so confident to enter another group into this mix is because he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also for the Greek, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, faithful churches, share the gospel with all people. Do you know as a church, as an evangelical church, we have a look? We do. You don't recognize it because we all look it. We all have collars or polos, dresses or nice shirts. We look the part. Two weeks ago when I was at a pastor's conference, there was 12,000 pastors. And when you walked in, Kelsey saw it, Laura saw it, they were accosted. Wow, all these guys look the same. Look at Ryan and I. We have collars on and flannel shirts. We, we have a look. When we share the gospel, there are people who are not going to be like us. That's to no surprise of anyone in this room. And yet we feel the friction when someone comes in that doesn't meet the look, that doesn't match. We get uncomfortable with it. But Paul is writing, I am not ashamed of that gospel. I'm not ashamed of what it can do and how it can transform. I greet all people in this church. All are welcome in this church to receive the same thing we all need, transformation and freedom from our sin, liberation from what has set, us, what set the world in motion to vilify one another. Brother Zane is a great example of this that I spoke about a couple minutes ago. When worship would end, we'd have the time of greeting. And, and when we say, hey, greet one another when you're around, Zane didn't hear greet someone. He said gr- he heard greet everyone. <laughs> and for the next however long it took, whether it's 120 people or 70 people in there, Zane would quite literally walk up and down the aisles shaking hands with everyone in the church. <laughs> and if you were a visitor, yes, it was odd, but man, it brought me great joy. Because oftentimes I'd be up there doing announcements, I would be preaching, and Zane would still be walking around, (laughs) greeting everyone, shaking his hands, one hand on his pants, one hand shaking hands. Zane didn't care. Your race, your creed, your age, it did not matter. You were welcomed into the body. Because the gospel is the power to save. First for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Both are being transformed in the image of God. But one thing Zane also did that I remembered as I was preaching last service Zane also shared the gospel with everyone he lived with. There were a lot of people from Hickory House in and around that church. Some never came into service. Some were just there for the coffee and the donuts. But I got to baptize a man named Philip who could barely articulate the gospel, that had a cane and he had a fedora. But all he knew is that he loved God and his God loved him. And so we need to imitate Paul. As we ratchet up this hill and are about to go through the ebbs and flows, the turns, the loops of Romans... There is a simple praise that we remain faithful. There's a simple prayer that we continue to grow, that we're always perfecting. And there's a plan that we share the gospel with all people, without exclusion. And so for us this day, we must live by faith, trusting God for the ordering of our day and the impact of our church in this community. We must continue continue being perfected into the likeness of Christ, receiving encouragement, correction, and direction from within this body. And we must share the good news of all pe- with all people, trusting in the power of God through the gospel to transform all of us, myself included, into the image of his Son. Will you pray with me? Father God, first, I would like to ask, just like Paul did with a praise, thank you for Christ Community Church. Thank you for the ministry and the faithfulness over the years, whether it be from pastors or elders, or people without a title who faithfully come, who faithfully give and proclaim your goodness to the world and the people around them. So God, thank you that this church has endured both trial and great blessing. 
May we not grow complacent, but may we constantly be perfecting in your image. But Lord, I also ask for humility to confess and to recognize where we still must be perfected, where our pride is still buried deep. So Lord, through the Spirit, will you convict in such a way that we can let go of the sin that so easily entangles that will lead to disunity and break us apart. Lord, may we be humble to learn from one another and to be encouraged. And may we take this good news. May we affirm the gospel to the people we're around in our actions and proclaim it in our words. For Father God, we know it is the power to transform this world, to see the difficulties, the anguish, and the pain be undone. For we know there will come a day when you will return and you will make all things right. Allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth with great joy and assurance that what you have said is true. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.